All right. Have you ever heard the phrase, there's nothing new under the sun? Have you ever used that phrase potentially? It's a phrase that's been adapted from the, the book of Ecclesiastes. And the idea that is that what has been will be again. Uh, what has been done will be done again. That there is nothing new under the sun. I thought about this idea in preparation for teaching through Jude this morning, and specifically through verses 5 through, sorry about that, verses 5 through 10. We're entering the letter of Jude at a, at a portion of the letter over the next couple of weeks, which actually will be verses 5 through 16 over the next two weeks, today 5 through 10, uh, that have some strangeness to them which I alluded to in the very first sermon of our, um, when we started this series in Jude. In fact, if you were a kind of topical uh, preacher and you wanted to preach something from Jude, you're more than likely not going to this portion, at least not very long at least, uh, but maybe jumping uh, from those very first few verses, which are clearly just full of encouragement, and then you may just jump to verse 17 of Jude, which again, kind of has that idea of being kind of more positive. But this reminds me of why I do appreciate our church family's emphasis, our commitment to teaching through books of the Bible or portions of the Bible to make sure we don't creatively avoid certain topics, but also to learn how to be a self-reader of the Bible, understanding tools and techniques for interpretation. The commitment to teach through books this way helps us to accomplish both of those, of those goals. We're specifically this morning looking at verses 5 through 10. A real quick reminder is that Jude, he tells us he had wanted to actually um, write them a, a letter emphasizing their common salvation in Jesus, but he found it necessary to write to them appealing, appealing for them to do what? It's kind of the title of a, the sermon series. It's not original. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why did they need to contend? Why did they need to approach the faith like an athlete prepares for competition with intentionality, with commitment, and with resolve? Because that's what Jude is calling them to contend for the faith for with that type of approach. We learn why Jude needs to send this letter for this reason. Because at verse 4 he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. He says ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And last week I mentioned you could sum up the second half of verse 4 by saying that these people, these people who have crept in unnoticed, were seeking to, one, take advantage of God's grace. And two, they were setting aside God's authority in their lives. Now as we look at the next few verses, Jude elaborates on what he said in verse 4 about these people who had crept in 
unnoticed. Real quick aside, we, we, don't, we don't actually know fully if they crept into the fellowship of this church knowing that what they were believing and teaching was wrong, but still did it anyway. Or if they actually truly believed they were correct in their understanding of God and life in Christ, but were in need of seeing that they're wrong. Either way, correction for the sake of the fellowship in the gospel is needed. And so Jude sends this letter this way. It takes courage and clarity to seek correction within or for the sake of the gospel within a fellowship when it's necessary. Which is why I also believe Jude started the letter out as he did, taking the posture of humility and emphasizing to them from the beginning God's gracious calling in their lives to salvation, which is a reminder of them being beloved and kept by God's grace and by our triune God. Now Jude, in the next three in the next three verses, 5, 6, and 7, is going to give them and us three examples of God's judgment. Not a, not a random judgment expressed without reason or without cause, right? As one might expect from an unloving, merciless God. But a judgment meant to remind these readers and us that God is holy and The expectation of this God for his creation is to lovingly trust him in obedience to his good, right, and perfect ways. That that is best for us. His will, his word is best for us. Not always easy. But it is best to experience life now as well as for eternity with him. These three examples, these three examples are types of disobedience that serve as warnings. Especially, remember, concerning the intruders who have crept in. It's their point. They've crept in the fellowship of the church family. And these are the three examples that Jude seems to assume that the readers would have some awareness of. They're Old Testament examples, and even one that comes from an extra-biblical source, so not one of the 39 books of the Old Testament. But Jude doesn't feel the need to go into great detail of giving an overview of each example. And this isn't necessarily because every person in this particular church was born Jewish, but probably at least... Some were, and they could get others whom were maybe Gentiles, not born into a Jewish family, up to speed if needed. These three examples of judgment are unbelieving Jews who were destroyed because of unbelief or experienced judgment based on unbelief. Their other example is fallen angels were judged for their rebellion And the third one was the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you're going to find Jude, I would take the Bible and I'd I'd go to the very back first. And then once I started to come back, if I got to one like Peter or John, I already went too far. 
Because right after 3 John before Revelation is the letter of Jude. In just 25 verses. But at verse 5, and you'll see it above as well. Verse 5 of Jude says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. First example Jude uses. Now it seems likely that Jude is referencing a time in Israel's story that's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 6 as well as Numbers 14. You might ask, if that's the case, why is Jesus mentioned? It's the Old Testament. That's a good question. It's a good observation if you make it. You've heard us say often, or maybe if you grew up in the church, you kept hearing this kind of, this kind of explanation that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. That it's there, that promise made of God that was going to send a rescue, a rescuer, is actually Jesus. And, and, and so it's the New Testament of Jesus' life and of, 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 the, of the early churches uh, living in light of Jesus' coming and dying and rising for us. And so the Old Testament is the New Testament. Jesus taught that. He said that in, in, in Luke 24, with those on the Emmaus Road, that he took them back to the Old Testament about everything that was about him, right? Paul, if you're familiar with Paul's writing, he interpreted the Old Testament similarly as well. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read Paul interpret the time God was leading his people out of Egypt recorded in the book of Exodus. And then Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were under all the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. Think about the manna maybe or the, the quail. And all drank the same spiritual drink. You think about the rock, right? And then he says, for they drank from the spiritual rock. Our translations probably have a capital R. That, flow, that followed them. And the rock, Paul says, was Christ. He says that was Christ. That was the Messiah. That's Jesus. Jesus was actually present with them. And then Paul also says, nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased. With most of them he was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, I reference this this to show that we're in good company when we see Jude saying that it was actually Jesus rescuing as the rescue was a part of God's big picture story to send the promised one, the Savior, the Messiah, who would ultimately and finally provide what no nation nor individual apart from God could provide. When we remember that last sentence of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And, and weave in Numbers 14, which again, you may have to look later, but in the beginning of that chapter of Numbers 14, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. You might say, well, 
Why were they doing that again? I forget. Well, what had happened for this reaction? The spies had gone into Canaan to secretly look at the land that God had given his word would be theirs. And they came back afraid, seeing the inhabitants of the land as bigger than God. And so they respond in unbelief. Um, Caleb didn't, but the rest did. So in light of this, we read in Numbers 14, they say, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let us go back into slavery. This is more than just a lapse of faith on their part. This seems to be similar to Moses' distinction to God's people as some who were circumcised of heart and some who were not. If you're reading the reading plan of our church family, you're in Acts chapter 7. And think about at the end of Acts 7, Stephen, the accusation he makes towards the end is, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. He's speaking to those who are not believing in Jesus. So one person has said Israel's apostasy or their their abandoning of God stands as a warning to all all those who think that an initial commitment secures their future destiny without ongoing obedience. So Jude is showing a judgment upon those who were not of God, maybe very close Maybe very similar, but almost unnoticed. Crept in. It crept in unnoticed until life or a pattern of life showed significant inconsistency within God's clear will for them. And so we see judgment. The next example Jude gives is Verse 6, and the angels, you'll see it above as well, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. And deep. Now some think unlikely that Jude is referring to the original fall of Satan, but more so the events that he and his hearers might have known from Genesis chapter 6. And they would have thought about this when Jude said this, about, about Genesis 6, where Jewish tradition consistently understood what was happening with these angels and the daughters of men as, as a sexual, intimate moment when fallen angels may have taken the form of humans and again were intimate with the daughters of men. A rebellion on the part of fallen angels. Originally created to submit to the authority of their maker, God. But who left their proper dwelling. Who left their proper bounds. Not willing any longer to submit to the authority of God. This example of rebellion, this kind of shirking of submitting to God's authority, Jude is using 
to describe the type of rebellion taking place by those who have crept into the fellowship unnoticed. But it also reminds them that these angels did not escape from judgment now or in the future, and nor will humanity if they continue to disregard the authority of Jesus. And the last example, the third example, Jude works in threes. Verse 3 says, just as, again, he's building off of just as those who disregarded Jesus' authority in the realm of sensuality, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The third example of a type of judgment experienced, which again is being used by Jude to connect the same type of judgment to those whom had snuck in within plain sight, but who were now, through their living out of their teaching, giving the evidence that they were not truly believing the gospel. Again, if you're reading with us through the church family reading plan, then this past week you, you, you would have also read through Genesis 18 and 19 the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It seems that most references to Sodom and Gomorrah come with the topic of homosexuality. Was it the only type of sexual sin happening within this region? I doubt it. One person's comment concerning what we see in these cities is this, quote, Sodom and Gomorrah was a place of self-indulgence, appetite without restraint, people never satisfied or sated, always famished, always wanting more. The prophet Ezekiel also gave insight into this story as he stated in his letter in chapter 16, verse 49, Behold, This was the guilt of our sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Another person sees a pattern, a pattern that I believe Ezekiel may be calling prosperous ease. When he said sexual immorality is the eager companion of the affluent society. One might define sexual immorality as any attempt to pursue intimacy differently than how God had planned best for us. Generally. Any pursuit of intimacy apart from God's good design showed us from his word. At this point, we need to remember specifically why this is being brought up by Jude. This is not Jude seeing sexual immorality outside among those who do not call themselves Christians. This is about a judgment being used to describe what is happening within this particular fellowship by those who have crept in unnoticed. My time as a follower of Jesus, which is 
for some of you has been a short time. For others, it may be a longer time. It's been about 19 years. And being a paid employee at the Pastoral 11 has been about 11, just over a decade or so. And, and you know, I, I always really want to be careful with my words, and I, want to, I just want to... But I have found that too many times Christians are too condemning over not-yet-believers acting like not-yet-believers and too soft on professing believers acting like not-yet-believers, specifically in the area of sexual immorality. It seems to be a little easier to be condemning of those we don't know very well potentially than courageously loving with those who we do. We'll get back to that in, a, in just a couple minutes. But for now, we wrap up Jude's third example of God's judgment, his eternal judgment, on those who are unwilling to submit to his authority. And now Jude draws the viewfinder in closer on these specific people that have crept in. And he says at verse 8, Yet in like manner, three examples of judgment, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. See how Jude is connecting the dots. Almost to say there's nothing new under the sun, guys. These people have crept in unnoticed, and now they're looking to an authority equal or greater than God himself to determine right from wrong. Their dreams are a source of revelation, not the word of God alone, as a justification for their lifestyle. I did a little internet perusing this week with certain church families in our area, whom I believe, kind of based on their denominational affiliation, do not have the same position as we do on our understanding of the Bible, the scriptures. What is, how would they go about interpreting? What's their hermeneutic? of understanding what God is desiring from his word. And, and in one of them, it says, not only, not only, quote, not only in the same denomination, but also in the same congregation, it is often possible to find folks who believe every word of the Bible to be factual, worshiping alongside sisters and brothers in Christ who treat the Bible as true in meaning, but not necessarily factual. And still others who would not even agree that the Bible is wholly true in meaning, let alone factual. Well, I got some red flags that can kind of come up when I'm, when I'm, when I'm reading that, right? Because I, as I read more of their belief concerning the Bible, I didn't encounter words such as, as, as the Bible being inerrant without error in its original manuscript or infallible, completely trustworthy for faith and practice. Nothing about being a final authority. I thought, what would Jude have thought if in response to his appeal for them to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, that he heard in return, and I quote, Indeed, it is when we feel most sure of our viewpoint that if we take the examples and warnings of Scripture seriously, if we take them seriously, we are most in peril. Well, what can you trust? Who can you trust? What are you going to base your life on? What are you going to base your hope on? I think that statement, along with most of the document I referenced, would cause Jude great concern. 
as it would be so closely aligned with the idea of certain people who have crept in saying Jesus saves and now teaching that Jesus does not have or really want the authority into our lives as he has in the past for our good as their inner self, their inner experience, or here, their dreams now are their guide. In the case we found from Jude, those whose authority is the Bible plus their experience and feelings or dreams, then you really are your own authority, which can lead to what he says, defile the flesh. An alternate translation could be pollute their own bodies. Sexual freedom leads to brokenness across the board in our culture. Living within a fallen world is tough enough. Living outside of God's design for you for intimacy is even more difficult. Let me remind again, this is happening. Jude is sending this to the church. Possibly these false teachers are even beginning to gain some traction in influencing others within the church family. And the community of faith is potentially looking more like the world than being in the world seeking to show others who God is like in grace and truth. That last phrase, the blaspheme, the glorious one, leads us into what might be kind of the strangest part of this morning. Jude elaborates on what he means by this when he goes into verse 9. You see it above. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume, that's what I would underline, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You might ask, what's strange about this? We know, we've heard about Michael the archangel before, and of course we've heard of Moses. I agree. Well, how about you turn in your Bibles to the book titled The Assumption of Moses? I'm not sure about your Bible app, but mine doesn't have that one within its 66 books that I learned were in the Bible. It's an extra biblical reference. A reference it would seem Jude's recipients are familiar with because he uses it as an illustration. And just because Jude references an extra-biblical source doesn't mean that Jude believes it is inspired with the same authority as the rest of Scripture. Again, we're familiar with Paul citing Greek poets and Greek sayings as well in some of his letters when he's teaching. What seems to be the main point is that Jude is trying to reference here is that Michael, the archangel, in the story, leaves the judgment for God. One has said that what he believes Jude is trying to say is follow the example of Michael and leaving the final judgment to God. And he says at verse 10, but these people, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They're not showing others who God is like. They're not teaching what God is like. These people speak with confidence, but they're wrong. I've heard someone say, if you aren't sure whether you are correct, just speak it like you are and others will believe you. Unfortunately, this can be true. 
but it would seem that these people really believed they were right in their understanding of the gospel and its implications into the everyday stuff of life, and they were wrong. They believed they understood heavenly things, but they were far out of their depth. They were more guided by their dreams and feelings and experiences than they were Jesus and his word given within the scriptures. One has said they arrogantly thought that they were smart, and they were probably intelligent people, but, they were impend- they, but their impending destruction, their impending judgment, is not temporal, but potentially eternal. Which is actually why next week, when we get to the woe, the woe to you, there's actually a lot of grace in the woe to you. My wife and I, we were just talking yesterday about the fox activity in the community around our home. And it's, it's increased with the uh, time of year as well as some construction that has changed their instinctive rhythms. Foxes don't huddle up and strategize uh, rationally to hunt more effectively. No, they just instinctively dart here and dart there across this busy road and this busy road because they're, they're animals. They're non-image bearers, and they respond instinctively. They're guided by an internal appetite to go without looking both ways before they cross the street. And I think Jude is saying, so are these folks. So are these folks with their understanding of the gospel, the Bible, and the faith that they're not contending for once for all delivered to the saints. I wrap up this morning. And I'm actually going to go this morning. Just a couple minutes longer. Sorry kids. But I've referenced an author before. Whose name is Rosaria Butterfield. And when we encounter in the Bible the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of Sodom and Gomorrah we tend to stop thinking as missionaries sometimes. Don't hear me say that missionaries of Jesus don't believe and convey truth. We do. But our posture has the potential to change when we encounter homosexuality, which is not God's design for intimacy. You're going to see a video. This video is a trailer for a book that Rosaria wrote titled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She's also wrote a couple other books before this, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert and also Openness Unhindered. Now you might ask, why show this during a pandemic when for many of us we can't use our homes as we would like to right now? I feel that way regularly. I get that. But I can use my driveway, maybe my backyard or outside spot somewhere, but, but maybe like many, like many had said early on in March when, when this pandemic really fairly first kind of hit, they, they said, God got our attention because we didn't realize having a meal together as a family had become so foreign to us till we were forced to, and we loved it. Maybe this is the time for us to pray for what could be or how we will make sure that hospitality with, with all, everyone that we're seeking to lead 
to life and growth with Christ can happen as we get through this season. And so let's watch this video. We live at this time where so many Christian ideas are understood as hate speech. After the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage, that put the gospel on a collision course with the new law of the land. And I think many Christians have been struggling with, well, how do I speak? What do I do? How do I move forward? Home is a vital place to invite your neighbors in to have some heartfelt conversations. We can love our children together. We can let some things slide, even though the world we live in would say that we're supposed to be enemies. To me, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. I was raised in an Italian family. There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York. In our LGBTQ community, somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go if I need help? Because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect. But one of the things that brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife Floyd invited me to dinner, I was happy. I, th I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I, I wanted to read the Bible to critique it. That began a research journey that changed my life. But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. After my first dinner at Ken and Floyd's house, Ken gave me a big hug. Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun. Can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me, and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful, because what it showed to me was that they didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything. Ken and Floyd were fine. 
and that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism, not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is. Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. I think we need to give each other the reminder that it's God who saves. It's not about certainly us being perfect or our words being perfect, but show up we must in the lives of unbelievers. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us, <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences, people who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors, and takes neighbors and makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies, and it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. I can listen to her over and over again. Please, uh, no emails. I didn't. We're not saying please do not share the gospel and please do not invite people to church. But show up, we must, in their lives outside of this space as well. I like that video because it also gives me a, almost a, a kind of a picture, a kind of a, a kind of a hope at what it can, what it, what it looks like. And, and, and hopefully increasingly looks like within our missional communities, our small groups, those, those gatherings of people. I know that it is hard right now in the midst of what we are, what we are walking through, but, but we, we, is now the time to be praying and asking. And, and asking God if, 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 if he wants us to, 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 to see with those types of eyes those who are not like us while we also within our church family still value the truth that we hold on to and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's why I love the local church. How else do you protect the gospel as Jude is calling for and show others who God is like with, without her? How else will you know who possibly may have crept in unless there's something to come in? And it's not a building as much as it is a people, 
a people accountable for one another and responsible for one another. Very grateful. Though they are not here now, they will be with us at our 11 o'clock service. Very thankful for the Boyer family, for Judd and Tina, because Judd and Tina Boyer, if you don't know them, they're a family that has joined our church within the last few, about a month or so. And that's exciting. So if you know them, let them know that you're, that you're happy, that this is how the Lord has led them. You, some may already really know them because they've also been doing life with the Rhodes MC. So some of you may know them because you've been doing life with them also. In a book that's available called Church Membership, it says at the end, and then I wrap up, through the lives of its members, the local church defines love for the world. This is good news because the world today is pretty confused about the definition of love. Even in Christian circles, we pit love against law and truth, dividing the world into truth people and love people. The only problem is Jesus' love is not like that. Jesus' love begins with an act of mercy, and then it calls the recipients of mercy to the freedom of obedience. This is a combination that the world does not understand, but this is the love of God. Love and holiness are not opposed to one another, but partner together to lead people to God. King Jesus then calls the churches to put his same merciful and obedient love on display for the world. A new commandment I give you, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples as you have love for one another. So we lay down our lives for one another and then fight together for the freedom of obedience. We contend for the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. And when we do, we display Christ's love for the world and cause the nations to give praise. As the team comes up and we finish with crown him with many crowns this morning. This morning's topics, they were, they were heavy. They were judgment, judgment, judgment. But the beauty of the gospel is that we all, every one of us, going our own way, we're determining right from wrong on our own, heading towards an eternal judgment to destruction, but realized by grace that Jesus was on a rescue mission to not only show us what obedience to the Father looked like and sounded like, but who also took upon himself our judgment deserved. Repentance, which was acknowledging that what God in his word says about me as a sinner is true. And faith, that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, I can know forgiveness and love in his family, learning how to live in his ways, oftentimes slowly, because I'm his. We know his presence is love, not judgment, because he is the lamb upon the throne.
you can know this presence as love as well if you would trust in Christ. For those who have, you have to keep trusting in Christ. And part of that is singing together the truth that crown him with many crowns.